0: You're up.
1: The story begins. We are on page forty-two. We're beginning the Shema. We are we're trucking along here. We're 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 moving along. This is exciting. This is an exciting part of Davening because the truth is almost everything we've learned or prayed until now is leading up to this moment is leading up to the Shema, especially the last few discussions we had, the blessings that precede the Shema. The Shema is a biblical mitzvah. There's a biblical mitzvah, a biblical commandment, to recite the Shema twice every single day. We incorporate it as part of davening. Theoretically, that mitzvah can be done independent of davening. And in fact, on days that we dive in late, like Shabbos, like at Shul, we have Shul at 10 o'clock. So we have to do the mitzvah earlier because there's a time frame for the mitzvah. The morning Shema has to be in the morning. The evening Shema has to be in the evening. And the morning Shema, which is in the morning, has to be finished by a certain time. You go to Chabad.org slash Zmanim, and you can see what the latest time for Shema is, which is these days, what is it, like nine-ish, 9 o'clock? Yeah, so I can tell you exactly. You, how you have until the third seasonal hour of the day, the third halachic hour of the day.
0: So if you say it upon rising, you know when you wake up, uh, and then you go to chakras uh, services where you have the opportunity to say it again, it's not considered said in vain, even though you've already said it in the morning.
1: Correct, correct, right? correct. correct. And, okay. you, and you should say it in, again in, in context of chakras, but just to point out, these days, um, the, the time that you could say it is also pretty late because dawn is pretty late, and the, the time that you're able to say it is not that early. It's I think now it's like six twenty, six thirty, or something like that.
2: And if it was daylight savings time, it would be even later.
1: <laughs> right, right. But you could. The, but to answer your question it's short, is it's not saying it in vain. And Mike, you're learning tractate brachas now, so you'll learn that in chapter uh, two of brachas. You'll learn about the times and when it's supposed to be said.
2: So when when we say it has to be said by a certain time, do we mean just the first verse or the first paragraph or all three paragraphs?
1: That's a good question. That's a good question. There's a debate about that. Ideally, all three paragraphs, paragla- paragraphs. <laughs> but um, it, it, it if, if you can't, there are opinions to whom re- to rely on. Um, so here's the story. Rabbi Schneer Zalman of Liadi, the, the Al Rebbe, who founded the Chabad movement, is did didn't grow up in Hasidic circles. I mean, to be honest, Hasidic circles didn't wasn't that old at this point. <laughs> the Bashemta founded the Hasidic movement, the Hasidic perspective of Judaism. The Baal Shem Tov uh, and, and his successor was the Magid of Mezritch, Rabbi Dovber of Mezrich. And Rabbi Shiner Zalman heard about this, but he grew up in more traditional Jewish settings. And he was intrigued. He was intrigued to go find out what it was. And he was actually um, given a choice. He had a choice to go to the town of Vilna. Where he'll, Where all... My speech is off today. I didn't have my diet coke yet. Where he'll sharpen his studying, his academics, or he'll go to Mezrich, which is where the Magid was, which is the more Hasidic town, where he'll sharpen his his uh, ability to pray. He said, "I know how to study already. <laughs> I know how to learn already. He was a he was a proficient scholar. He was young at the time, um, but but he was a prodigy." He said, let me go learn how to pray. Let me go learn how to perfect my davening. And he wanted to learn Hasidic teaching. He wanted to learn Hasidus. So the the Magid of Mezrich, Rabbi Dober of Mezrich, who was the successor to the Baal Shem Tov, was very impressed with what he saw. He was very impressed with the Alter Rebbe, with his academic proficiency. And he said, here's what we're going to do. I have a son who's quite proficient in Hasidic teaching. You're quite proficient in general Torah and halachic knowledge. My son will teach you Hasidic Hasidus. You'll teach my son Talmud. An exchange. The Magid's son, his name was Rabbi Avraham, and he had a nickname. They called him Avraham the Hamalach. Avraham the angel. Because he was a holy guy. He was quite angelic in his own right. So Rabbi Shner Zalman of or Rabbi Avraham down to learn. Rabbi is going to teach him Hasidic teaching. He's going to teach him Tanya. I'm kidding, because the al wrote the Tanya a little bit later, but it was founded on these teachings. But he's going to teach him that perspective. There was no official writings back then. These were all oral teachings when it came to Hasidic teaching. Tanya was one of the first. I wouldn't say the first, but it was one of the first official documents. Um, And the al is going to teach him Talmud. So they begin from to study Talmud tractate brachos, tractate brachot about blessings. It's the first tractate of the Talmud, and they begin to read. And the beginning of how does brachai start? Like how does that how does that section of the Talmud start? it starts about the times for reading the Shema, right? From when can you read the Shema? That's what the Talmud asks. That's the first opening. That's the opening question of the Talmud. And Rebavram says to the Rebbe, you're translating it wrong. What? It doesn't say from when do you read the Shema. Me'omotai, which means from when, could also come from the Hebrew word ema, with fear, with with awe. With awe, me'ema, me'ematai, with awe, that's how you read the Shema. And the altar of goes, is, whoa, man, I, I'm paraphrasing, but he was he was very inspired by that insight. Because what Avraham HaMalach was showing him, that embedded in the text of the Talmud itself, is not just what to do, read the Shema at this time, but there's the inner passion behind it, how to do it. There's the passion, there's the, the the reverence, the inner sense of respect we're supposed to have when reading the Shema. I just read this story last week, but I'll tell you something fascinating. I read this exact same story with two other Hasidic personalities. Reb Zusha of Reb Same exact story took place with them, too. And both stories are recorded. Um, So it sounds like it happened twice. But what is the Shema? What is the purpose of the Shema? What's the Shema all about? Hashem Echad, God is one. The Shema is central to Jewish life. It's central to our Jewish identity. God is one. The Shema is what we recite all together in unison in the closing of Yom Kippur. It's one of the first things we teach our children when they're born. It's what somebody says under deathbed. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and we need to Shema. What does Shema mean? Commentary say Shema doesn't just mean to to hear, but it means to listen. Right? We heard God, but are we listening? What's the difference between hearing and listening?
0: Comprehension.
1: Comprehension, and I would say also intention. Hearing is passive. Somebody speaks, you're going to hear, whether you like it or not. But whether you're going to listen or not, that's your choice. It's not the selective listening. (laughs) Hearing is not selective, but listening is selective. And that's what commentaries say that the word Shema means. It means to, it implies to actually listen, to internalize. Israel is referring to the soul. Like we said earlier. Our soul has to listen. Our soul has to internalize. The God is Elokeinu. He's our God. This God who's our God. He's one. What does that mean he's one? What does it mean when we say that there's only one God? We're not saying that there is one God. We're saying God is one. And there's a profound difference between the two. To say that. There is one God, as opposed to two, three, or four. But to say God is one is a whole different story. He's literally one with everything. Anything we see is literally a part of his oneness, an expression of his oneness, the sum of his oneness, an expression of his oneness. Even though from our perspective it seems independent. Take a look at the Hebrew word in the Siddur over here, echad. Last word of the word uh, of the Shema. Echad, right one. Echad has three letters: Aleph, Ches, Dalet. the explanation is Aleph is numerical value of one, referring to God. Ches, numerical value of eight, which represents the seven. Layers of heaven, plus our realms, plus earth. Dalar, numerical value of four. The four directions, north, south, east, west. While all of this seems independent, vast, and perhaps intimidating, it's literally just Echad, it's all one. It really is all one with God. Doesn't look like it's all one, but that's why we have to listen. We have to hear.
3: So I got a question. Yeah, um, go for it. So you mentioned that it's a torah mitzvah to say the shema twice, but does that do you differentiate between do it during mariv, or if you missed it and you sit at the bedtime shema, would that satisfy the requirement?
1: That would satisfy the requirement. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, good question. Um as, as long as the shema itself is said, the biblical commandment has has been satisfied. Um what's interesting is there's a debate whether mitzvahs need intention. Can you do a mitzvah by accident or do you have to be intentional about Do you have to be intention intentional about mitzvahs, right? So if you decide I love shofar, let me play the shofar. Oh, that happens I've been Rosh Hashanah Right. Did you fulfill the mitzvah or not? Right. You didn't have intention. Right. So did you. So there's a debate. There's a big debate in the Talmud about that. But according to all opinions, the Shema needs intention. Because it's central. Intention meaning not only knowing what that line means, but intention meaning I'm doing this because this is a mitzvah. Um, That that, and 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 part of that intention is the time that it that it you know it requires being intentional as well, but perhaps the message is also even in the constraints or the limitations of time, God is still one. God is one with everything. He's one with time. He's one with space. We then say the next line: Baruch Shem Kavod Machuta, La'olam Va'er, Blessed be the name of the glory of His kingdom forever and ever. Where did that line creep into? (laughs) <laughs> how did that get there?
3: That's well, a dangerous thing, isn't
1: it? Right. In, in other words, if you were to open up Deuteronomy, where this where the Shema is taken from, you have the Shema in the Torah, you have the Ahavta, the next paragraph, you should love God in the Torah. Baruch is not in the Torah. Where did it come from, right? So there's actually two different explanations as to how it crept up here the Talmud says we had several portions ago Torah portions ago Yaakov Jacob was about to bless his sons right and he was about to reveal to them when the end of days are going to be when the Messianic era is going to be and what does Rashi tell us he lost his prophetic vision as the words were about to come out of his mouth missed it and Yaakov got quite nervous. Is it due to his children's lack of faith that perhaps his prophetic vision left? So his children said, Shema Yisrael. Listen, Yisrael. Who's Yisrael? Yaakov. Yaakov is also Yisrael. Listen, Yisrael. Hashem Hashem echad. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. We still believe in one God. We're, we're still faithful. Not our fault. Yaakov was relieved and he says, Baruch Shem Kavod Machut, blessed the name of his glory. Thank God. Thank God. The other story is when Moshe was getting the Torah at Mount Sinai and he heard the angels praising God, Baruch Shem Kavod Machut, and he said, I like it, let's take it. Right, So we incorporate it in davening. We're going to discuss in a minute why we incorporate it in davening, in the Shema. But one of the reasons why we recite it quietly is, number one, we don't want to offend the angels. You don't want to mess with an angel. You upset an angel, man. That's, uh, that's not good. Um, but number two, it's not a, the text before it is from the Torah. The texts after it are from the Torah. That's not from the Torah. So we recite it quietly. Right. On Yom Kippur, we recite it out loud because we're like angels. So it's said out loud on Yom Kippur. That's why we dress dressing white on angels. We we have that status of angels. We're not going to offend them. But in in the base on mikdash on a regular basis, they would also recite it out loud, even during the like, week because of because they had that angelic status.
2: Um, you, you said uh that's not from Torah, but it, there's a a little two next to Vahed, and then at the bottom it says Pesachim fifty six a. Is that referring where it comes from or
1: that's the Talmud.
2: It's the Talmud.
1: If you look at uh, in the Talmud tract, Psachim 56a, you'll see that story that I just told you with Yaakov and his sons, and you'll see the story oh. of Moshe receiving it, retrieving it from heaven. And that's the, that and that's where the Talmud gives the background to what's in the Torah. And Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy Rabbah? So that's a, a midrash. There's a midrash called Deuteronomy Rabbah. Hmm called the – we'll learn about it in our class, but it's called Midrash Rabbah. And there's – in Midrash Rabbah, you have Genesis, Rabbah, Barashis, Rabbah, Shamos, Rabbah. And it's a a series of midrash on the Torah where it fills us in with basically the backstory of the Torah. So this is just the, the citation for that. In order to the, the the way we treat the Shema we essentially treat the Shema uh oh I just lost my pencil. I can't speak without a pencil. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> gotta hold gotta have some <laughs> the, the way we um the way we treat the Shema is as a meditation. It's essentially a meditation. To meditation, we have to verbalize, but we actually have to be intentional about it and think about what we're saying. And we're thinking that God is one. God is the only one. There is nothing else besides God. Even our own independent reality, our eyes tell us everything is pluralistic. But our ears, if we're intentional, we listen, we know otherwise. That's very hard to relate to God on that level. That could be quite abstract. Which is why we also meditate on God's kingdom. Relating to God as a king is perhaps perhaps a little bit more relatable. Blessed be the name of the glory of his kingdom forever and ever. Thinking about God as a king, and with, with a king comes a certain level of independence and space. It's, it's easier to envision God as a king in that sense. So these are essentially two levels of meditation. He's got everything, which he is. Or can we better appreciate him as our king? As our sovereignty. The tradition, an old tradition, to cover our eyes during the Shema. What's the reason for that? It's based on the Talmud for concentration, right? And, and the source is actually from the Talmud. Track date, brachos. Mike, you're lucky you're learning this track date because it really, there's so much, it, it's it's so relevant to um, just daily things. But the source for it is the Talmud um, testifying how the famous sage Rebbe would say Shema. Says he was a mis- giving a lesson and the time of Shema was coming, so he quickly covered his eyes and he said the Shema. That's how we know about this tradition. And commentaries wonder and discuss what the significance of covering the eyes are. Right? And on a basic level, is it's concentration. We're supposed to focus. In fact, this is the only one of the only parts of davening, with a few exceptions where we where, where kavana intention is a real requirement even in hindsight if one didn't have intention they'll have to say the shema again at least that first line that one line there's another explanation one of my favorite biblical commentators the kleyachar he explains here's how he here's how he puts it i'm paraphrasing if you want to see if you want to know what something is you have to hide what it looks like when you know what something looks like you don't get to know what it truly is because you're stuck by it. You're, you're distracted by what you see make sense
0: yeah and actually i'm, I'm curious what extensions that has so um as an example, like why do we cover the bride's face with the right. protection?
1: Right, right, right.
0: It seems like seems to be the same thing. Know the person, right? Exactly. Uh, as 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 opposed to just the outer shell. You
1: Ex- know exactly, exactly same idea, right? They're yeah. about to start this marriage, and the marriage has has to be founded on when Adam and Eve first were intimate with one another. Adam knew Eve. That's what the Torah says. That was intimacy. They have to know each other. And if you want to know somebody, you can't just see them. According to Jewish law, intimacy between husband and wife is supposed to be in the dark, pitch black. And it's for that same reason. If you want to know who someone is, you can't see what they look like. That's not to say that what somebody looks like is not important, that seeing is not important. There are times where the Torah tells us to see, right? See the blessings that I place. There are times where we do need to see, but there are times where if you really want to know what the essence of something is, you can't, you have to hide what it looks like. We want to know God. We want to internalize that God is one. We want to internalize that He is the truth and He is the reality of our existence. We got to close our eyes. We got to cover our eyes. We can't go by what we see. If we follow the scientific reality, which means. That's not to say that science isn't true, but but if we follow merely what our eyes tell us, we don't don't see the whole picture. We have to cover our eyes, and we have to listen. We have to shema, to a greater depth. The Kliakar points out something interesting, an interesting phenomenon. Whenever the Talmud uh, references blind people, it uses the term, Aramaic term, sagi nahor, which is an Aramaic phrase referring to blind people saginahor if you were to translate the word saginahor literally you know what it means a lot of light an ironic phrase to to refer to blind people with a lot of light or sufficient light and the the, the understanding is usually that it's kind of facetious a facetious way of referring to somebody who's blind. But the Kleoka says, no, it's quite literal. Somebody who's blind, who doesn't see, has more light. They have a deeper ability, uh, a, a deeper sensitivity.
3: So I got a question. So actually, ironically enough, I listened to a Sherm today when I was driving home. Um, Where the question was posed, is it, if you had a choice... <laughs> I'm sorry I'm still getting over um
1: no worries um
3: if you had a choice between being blind or deaf most people would choose to be deaf but it's actually in some I can't remember the references I think it's Talmudic that being deaf is in some ways equivalent to being dead
1: it it, it does say that about being blind it does about the there was a death element to being blind and actually so i was just reading today some commentaries explain that we cover our eyes during the shema represents that self-sacrifice for what the shema represents as well because blindness does represent an element of of death
0: but
2: when we cover our eyes should that be just for the shema or also the second verse bruce Shem, Kavod?
1: that's a good question that's a good question um, there are sources that say you cover for Baruch Hashem Kavod as well. Um, in practice, I don't know what what the Chabad tradition is. Um, I don't think people do it. Hmm. I can look it up afterwards.
2: And why? Why? I know here we cover our eyes, but um, when we take out the Torah, like on Shabbos, right. I I don't see anybody covering their we, eyes. We don't
1: cover. We don't cover our eyes at that point. Why not right. then? So uh, I mean, at that point, we're not doing the mitzvah of Shema. Hmm. It's more uh, quoting the Shema in, in davening, you know, in kedusha by Musa on Shabbos. We we quote the Shema. But well, there are other places we quote the Shema, but but over here, there's the there there's a certain um climax that we're reaching to with the Shema. So
2: if we said Shema in the morning before chakras, then do we still cover our eyes when we say shema during chakras?
1: right it, it's a good question and technically you probably don't need to but we we still do cuz there's a certain climax and meditation that you're still going through mm. that you're still trying to develop right there's a certain experience we're trying to develop
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and that ex- experience is trying to to sense and feel and and internalize that god is one my mind won't let me see it. My mind can't see it. Right? My 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 body can't see it. We have what's called inattentional blindness. You know, what intentional blindnesses. It's a scientific or psychological term for basically you, you. can't see everything. You're not meant to see everything. Your eyes filter. Your eyes have selective see, uh, selective viewing. Because you can't see everything. You ever drive at night? Your headlights are on, and then you turn on your bl- Your brights. It's like, oh, wow, I didn't see that tree. I didn't see that sign. And There's a video. So there's an experiment somebody did. It's on YouTube. It says there's, a there's like, six basketball players with, like, three basketballs, and they're all passing the ball to each other, or, or whatever. You have to, and you have to count how many times they pass the ball to each other. That's what it says. And then they ask you at the end of the video, did you see the dancing bear? Like what? Video rewinds and you see a bear dancing in the middle. But nobody notices it because you're busy counting the ball. Your uh, your mind doesn't go there, right? Our eyes can't see everything. I saw that video. Right? It's power, isn't it, Isn't <laughs> it cute? It's it's like it's it's creepy. amazing,
0: actually. It's it's so true, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's very true. We we can't see everything. And we're recognizing from the get-go that if we want to appreciate God, it's not gonna be with our eyes, it's gonna be with our soul. And that's through listening. That's through processing. That's through effort. That's through intention. When you see someone, you know, picture is a thousand words, right? It, w- which means if I had to describe what something looks like, it takes a lot longer than just to show it to you, right? But which one are you going to understand better? Right, if I give you a biography of somebody or show you a picture of them, when are you gonna really get to know them? With the Shema, we're forced to think about God, we're forced to internalize God, forced to meditate on God. There are times when we've seen God as a people at Mount Sinai. How long did that inspiration last for? (laughs) There's times where golden calf. Right, <laughs> golden calf. Just a couple of weeks later, how there's times in our own life where we felt like we had a, perhaps not a literal visual experience, but we've been inspired. We have the clarity of the of sight. How long did that lasts for? Right? <laughs> how long did that inspiration stick around for? The Shema is us approaching God. We're going to listen to God. We're going to internalize and think about God. It's not going to be through seeing. This is a a wonderful model for relationships. We're going to close our eyes we're going to approach this intentionally. Not just be satisfied with what we see. And you know what the result of that is? True love. Take a look at the next paragraph. You should love the Lord your God. The question that's commonly asked is how can you tell me who to love? (laughs) tour is telling us who to love doesn't how is that possible you're telling me how to feel so unpopular in 2023 by the way try telling anybody especially if they're a teenager tell them how to feel <laughs> right and then you'll have a perfect excuse for how you got that black eye no i'm kidding <laughs> no, i'm teasing but how do you <laughs> tell somebody how to feel the Torah expects that we have some sort of manipulation abilities. We have some sort of control over our feelings. Because we have control over how we think. If we think about God, which is what the Shema is, and we realize that He literally is our life. He is everything. So now the natural re- result of that is Ve'ohavta, you should love God. This is what should happen. This should be the result. The result of Shema Israel of Yisrael, listen up, internalize that God is one and he's Elokeinu, he's your God the result of that is you should love God you'll feel it you'll love God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your might Three various levels in passion in love. What does this love do, by the way? Why is it important to love God? We spoke about loving God a lot last week. The whole blessing was about love. And it was a preparation for this, so we could love God. But why is it important to love God? So actually, if you look in Deuteronomy... On this verse, you shall love God. Rashi tells us why it's important to love God. Which means it's a good question. Rashi had the question. (laughs) Rashi's giving us the, the, the literal interpretation of the text. Which means if you want to understand the Torah properly, you have to know why it's important to love God. And Rashi there says that if you don't love God, you're not going to really stick with his commandments when it's hard. responsibilities don't stick around unless you love them
0: mm, if, mm, if, if the mm.
1: if our relationship no we're not saying it shouldn't stick around we're saying pragmatically from a pragmatic perspective if you love what you do you're going to stick to it
0: but that I, I i agree with that but it's it's um uh, you know, this is almost counter to the, the concept of the fake it till you make it thing, right? Because, you know, whether you love God or you don't love God, um, you should be following God's commandments. 100%. Uh, right? So, um, the, it's like there shouldn't be a dependency of love in order for you to re- to to realize that you'd be need need to be keeping God's commandments, so I'm having 100%. trouble having trouble 100%. Kind of taking
1: 100%. that. We're not saying that if you don't love God, don't do it. But what we are saying is, if you do love God, you're going to end up doing it in the long haul,
2: for sure. Uh,
1: and and that that's a relationship. A relationship is not just you have to do what God wants, which is an important part of the Some relationships. relationships are about responsibility. But a deep relationship centers around you you get to do what God wants. You get to do it. Now, if you don't feel that, you still gotta do it. <laughs> but our what we're aiming for is you you get to do it. The whole Tanya is a manual on how to love God, how to revere God as well. They're both important. I, I'll tell you a story. Going back to the 1920s, where Chabad was based out of originally in Lubavitch at that point, but this was, you know, communist Russia didn't make Jewish life very easy. So the center of Chabad, which was in Lubavitch, kept on moving. And at this point, it was in Rostov. And then it kept on moving. Every couple of years, it moved. One of the veteran teachers, in the Chabad Yeshiva. One of the original um, the OGs. OGs? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Rabbi, Rabbi Shlomo Chaim Kesselman. Rabbi Shlomo Chaim Kesselman was is an iconic Chabad figure. He was a follower of the Rabbi Rashab, Rabbi Dober of Lubavitch, then the previous Rabbi, and then the Rabbi. So he, he Pa- passed away in the, uh, I think, the late 80s. Shlomo Chaim Kesselman had to move with the yeshiva. And the yeshiva was kept underground. It was hidden from the communists because studying Torah was illegal. Observing mitzvahs was illegal. Shlomo Chaim was a passionate person. He was in love with God. He really was. They would describe his davening. He's literally just Talking to God, he's not reading a book. He's not reading a sitter. He's talking to God. So he was giving a lecture. He's giving a Tanya class nine o'clock at night in Yeshiva, and the communist police—was it the KGB or I don't know, whoever it was back then—the communist police got sense that there was a group of Jewish people gathering, studying Torah. Not to be confused with the COVID police. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Mm-hmm. The, the, <laughs> so the, the communist police get sent, get word that they're studying Torah. And they decide that they're going to sneak into the shiva and hide behind the door. Because normally they would put up students. Students would rotate, guarding outside and warn if people are going to come. So they came inside early. When nobody was looking, they hid behind the door. Rabbi Shlomo Chaim Kesselman is teaching Tanya. And he's getting passionate and he's explaining the concepts and it's late at night. One of the soldiers pop out of nowhere from behind the door. Standing there with his rifle, standing up, everybody's like, and he goes, now what do you have to say? Chaim looks up at him. He goes, My Riv! <laughs> Evening sir." <service. laughs> <laughs> <laughs> they pull out their sitters and they start doing my giving the guy no attention the guy was shocked like what he was so shocked that he let them do my because he just was like what what just happened they ended up finding or I'm um, actually punishing Osama the government punished him and he had to he had to do some sort of community service street cleaning in in Russia he wore this as a badge of honor because he knew why he was getting punished. Because he was adhering to his to his values and, and perpetuating Judaism and the Torah. Because he loved God, he would show up every day to this intensive labor wearing his Shabbos clothing because it was a sacred activity. You can't do that if you don't love God. You could, you can't fake that if you don't love God. I mean, you're gonna feel a lot of resentment. It's not gonna work. At some point, I, 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 I mean, look, that's that's not to say that we don't fake it till we make it, but but somebody like that who's made it, and we can all experience that love on our own level, and it could push us to do crazy things on our own level. But what is the real indication that our love is genuine? In other words, what is the real purpose of this love? The answer is action. Observance. Let's read through the paragraph. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your might. These And these words which I command you today shall be upon your heart. So we're talking a lot about the emotional experience of mitzvahs of God. You shall teach them thoroughly to your children. You shall speak of them. When you sit in your house and when you walk on the road and when you lie down and when you rise. So if we really love God and we really love our Judaism and it's really something that's sitting on our heart, you know what's going to happen? We're going to be obsessed. We're going to not stop talking about it. We're going to perpetuate that to our children, to the next generation. Because we're obsessed with it. It's our true love. People, especially children, are sensitive to what we love. When we're at home, when we're walking, when we're traveling, when we go to bed, when we wake up, I'm obsessed no matter where I am, not just in shul. And then you shall bind them as a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for your reminder between your eyes. It's something we're going to literally bind to us. That love is going to motivate action. I'm actually going to do the commandments. If I really love God, I'm going to show him that I love him, not just say I love you. And if I really love God, that's going to be contagious. We're going to be able to teach that to our children. And by the way, the Talmud says, Rashi points it out over here. When it says children over here, it says children in the next paragraph as well, teaching children. So the second time it's referring to children in little literal sense. Over here, it's actually referring to students. We have to, And everybody has to have students. Everybody has to have someone else whom they inspire, whom they empower. But the way we do that is we become passionate with our values. We become in love with it. And that's the meditation of the Shema. Meditation of the Shema, that God is one. God is the only one. And I have to close my eyes and experience that. That leads to passion. That passion motivates action. Okay, that's my story and I'm sticking to it.